This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to episode number nine of Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. It is Sunday, November 6th. We're here live for the next hour on Space 101.1 FM, a community station right here in Magnuson Park, historic uh, Sandpoint Naval Air Station on the shores of Lake Washington. The show started uh, in September of this year, and we've been going for a little bit more than two months now. We try to talk to people all around the region about local history, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. Got some great guests tonight. Uh, in a, just a moment, we're going to talk to Professor Megan Asaka. She's an author of a new book from UW Press called Seattle from the Margins. And then a little bit later on, we'll talk to Cyrus Foreman up at the San Juan Island National Historic Park. It's a big anniversary of the Pig War or the Pig Peace, and we'll hear directly from Cyrus, who's a park ranger up there at the historical park. And then we'll hear from uh, John Maynard, Northwest radio legend, old friend of mine, and a local hero for broadcasting all over the state of Washington with an interesting history, and we'll talk to him as well. But, you know, it is election season. Um, uh, I don't know if you heard the show that comes on before this one, um, History is Music, Music is History. They played some great stuff, but... um, you know, I don't know if, like me, you might have grown tired of all the ads that are playing on the radio lately for this senator, this this candidate for Senate versus this sen- candidate for Senate or this candidate for Congress versus that candidate for Congress. So fortunately, here at Space 1.1 FM, we're immune from all that stuff. We're a community radio station. But we do get support from the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture and from For Culture. And I thought we would just take a little trip down memory lane and... Um, you know, about 60 years ago, 62 years ago, there was a guy running for mayor for his second term, Mayor Gordy Clinton, and I've dug up some old ads from the Clinton campaign. So let's hear what a, a political campaign ad from Seattle circa 1960 would have sounded like. By the re-elect Mayor Clinton committee, now another progress report from Mayor Clinton. I thought perhaps you'd be interested in seeing a few of our most recent traffic improvements. The Broad and Mercer Street underpass. The new Ballard Bridge approaches the Alaskan Way Viaduct Extension, the Empire Way Extension, the Garfield Street Overpass. Now, through a six-year capital improvement program, plans and priorities have been set for other important traffic improvements. Through teamwork, Seattle is staying abreast of its future traffic needs, and we intend to keep it that way. With the leadership of Mayor Clinton, Seattle has seen significant progress through teamwork. Vote for proven leadership. Re-elect Mayor Clinton. So as you're filling out your absentee ballot, if you live here in the state of Washington, or your, excuse me, your mail-in ballot, look for, look for Mayor Clinton there. I don't think you'll find him, but uh, that's a little glimpse back into electoral history in the city of Seattle 62 years ago. All right. Um, so we do focus. We're the only live radio show focused on Pacific Northwest history. Try to bring in as many different kinds of voices and different stories as possible because we live in such a great part of the country and there's 
good stories. There's stories about bad times, stories about good times. I like to bring in all kinds of different um, voices. So I'm really excited that uh, Megan Asaka is joining us. Let me see if I can connect her right now. Let's see. Megan, can you hear me? Yes, I'm oh, here. Terrific. You're on the air on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Thanks for joining us on a Sunday night. Um, congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you today. Now, it's as I understand, I don't have a copy of the book. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I don't have a copy of it. But as I understand it's called Seattle from the Margins, and it looks at some sort of unknown portions or little, little known stories that are related to the bigger, well-known, almost mythology of Seattle, but stuff that hasn't been t- properly told before. Is that kind of a fair description? Yes, that's a fair description. And I really focus actually on um, the workers, the migrant workers and the seasonal workers, the mobile laborers who really were instrumental in building Seattle, like their labor, physically building the city, and yet who have been really forgotten in the historical memory um, of the city and who have been erased, I think. Um, When we think about as Seattleites, you know, who was important and who wasn't from that early time period, they're often not acknowledged or remembered. So the book kind of tries to retrace and reconstruct the early history of, of this kind of mobile population and also ask you know, why is it that we don't remember them or acknowledge them as being important to the early history of the city? Let's tackle that that last question first, that why don't we remember the people that you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's complicated. I think in the book, I talk about how a lot of the, um, the like physical sites and uh, forms of housing, like labor camps and shanty towns and, you know, Hooverville, I'm sure your listeners have heard of Hooverville, the shanty town that kind of sprouted up during the Great Depression, mm-hmm. um, these so-called slum districts like Profanity Hill that housed these workers. Most of them were demolished by the 1930s and certainly by uh, 1941, 1942, uh, when the U.S. entered World War II and Seattle's economy shifted. And so I make an argument in the book about the physical demolition of these sites, um, right, these labor camps, and these kinds of ephemeral spaces, and the kind of erasure of the group of workers um, from the kind of memory of the city. So I think there's a connection there between the actual just demolition projects and the fact that their homes and neighborhoods were demolished and really erased. And then that's, I think, plays a role into why they're so forgotten. And, you know, I've, I've, done some research about what they're called shack towns, which were back as early, I think, as the 1880s or 1890s along the waterfront. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, these areas called shack town and up in the, uh, along the uh, Beacon Hill, where they eventually called that area the jungle. But I also mm-hmm. read about that. There was that really big camp, I think it was at Garfield Street, right there in Magnolia at Pier 91, where the, when the Navy came in and they, that was the last big camp, I think they actually moved everyone out, then they just burned it all down. Yeah. Yes. Yes. They just burned it down. Yes. And, you know, all of this happened really, I mean, it happened over time. Yeah. But the major demolitions really happened um, kind of around the late 1930s, early 1940s, as the city was kind of transitioning into like a war economy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, manufacturing. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think another another reason, I, I worked at the Museum of History and Industry for about six or seven years, and I grew up going to that museum when I was a kid. And I think it's it probably isn't unusual compared with other big historical societies in other parts of the country that tell sort of this great white men of history story because mm-hmm. the original donors for the historical society 120 years ago were people who were making lots of money in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And they kind of established this mythology of Seattle around 
you know, like the, 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 the Denny party and like fighting off the Native Americans during the, the, the treaty wars and then the gold rush and then, the, you know, the, uh, the 1909 AYP World's Fair. There are these sort of milestones that are easy to tell in those old school 1950s, 1960s style exhibits where the big dioramas and the big um, murals of the very bold settlers doing this sort of stuff. And the natives are off to the side kind of in there, you know, cowering over in the, you know, in the, in the, on the mar- literally in the margins of the history. Yeah, and so oh, I, for sure. I feel like just in the last couple of years, it's a new world in terms of how organizations like museums are telling stories about the regions that they serve, whether it's a big city like Seattle or even a, you know, a small city somewhere out in a suburban or rural area. So it's, I think your book is really well-timed to better inform attempts that museums like Mohai, like the State History S- Historical Society down in Tacoma, and just this, this hunger for stories. It feels like there could be, I mean, in a perfect world, there's this ideal hunger for stories from everybody on a, on a level playing field. And whether, regardless of the color of your skin or your socioeconomic status now or 150 years ago, it feels like, to me anyway, there's an openness to hear stories that haven't been told before. I think so. I think that's right. And I actually also went to Mohai when I was a kid. I grew up in Seattle. Oh, you did? Um, okay. And my, I did. And my family's been in the city for since, you know, the turn of the 20th century. So I have long roots in the city. And, you know, the the motivation for the book was really kind of grappling with the message that I got from exhibits like Mohai, you know, back in the 80s and stuff. Yeah. Um, and from, you know, like textbooks, history books, from news articles, was that Seattle is a progressive city when it came when it came to race, that it mm-hmm. would somehow exist outside of the fraught racial history of <laughs> other Americans. That's the message that I got. Yeah. And that was that didn't that obviously didn't sit well with me because I'm Japanese American. You know, my family was removed from Seattle in nineteen forty two, incarcerated, lost everything, mm. you know, and came back and struggled. And, you know, they came back to a city that really did not want them. So I was always like, why is there this disconnect here between, you know, the, the Seattle that I know based on my family experience, my family history, and then the Seattle kind of that I'm hearing about in other arenas like, you know, museums, and et cetera. And so I really wanted to try to tell a different kind of Seattle history um, with this book. But I do the difference to me from when I was growing up was I do think that there's so much more interest and engagement with with the themes of the book like there's so there's such great interest that i'm getting um in seattle which i think is amazing and that's why i wrote the book was to kind of spark conversations um about the city's history and the connection between the past and present yeah and that complexity that's one thing i've thought about a lot is because that that old story that was told at mohai which it's it's not told that way anymore they they've evolved and changed over the years oh, for sure. like like, yeah. like any institution here in seattle i think yeah. you know they've done a good job um but that story that that resonated for so many decades about, you know, the Denny party arriving and then all the, you know, the women crying because it's raining and then Chief Seattle has a blanket. And there's sort of that story is so simple in some ways and um, simplistic and watered down that it's easy to remember. <laughs> and it's easy for right. that. It's easy to understand why that becomes part of the mythology. And then the introduction of the more complex narratives that don't, don't always reflect well on the, the, the settlers the way it might have, you know, 20 or 30, 40 years ago before the, uh, this new era of telling stories. Those, those, I, I guess I'm, I'm concerned that the complexity, that it's going to be hard for that complex story to achieve as, as, as much penetration as that really simple kind of, you know, great white man of history story. I don't know. You might you get what I'm trying to say. I mean, it's sort of. Yeah. I hear that. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I actually, 
I think that I think that it's changing, though. And I'm saying this because I teach at the university level Mm -hmm. and I teach at UC Riverside. And I just I feel like this new generation of students is like kind of rejecting that. (laughs) They're just like, you know, we're not satisfied with that. We don't want to see history that way. And we're we want more diverse, um, you know, forms of history that help to explain our family's experience. That's just been my experience, of course, in, in, you know, Southern California. But I do think that there is a shift taking place. Um, and something that I really wanted to do was to take the kind of like iconic moments in Seattle history, like the, you know, the gold rush, right? The, mm-hmm. the discovery of gold in Alaska, uh, in the Yukon, the Klondike gold rush, and to really kind of like subvert it a little bit. So I talk about, I mean, I don't talk much about the gold rush, but I do talk about it because, you know, I try to show that. Um, Chinese and indigenous workers were mi- making that migration for years before it became, right, we're kind of uh, passing through Seattle, right, and using Seattle as this kind of crossing over place for years hmm. before, right, people started coming uh, for the gold rush and doing that same kind of circuit of migration up to Alaska and back. Hmm. So I'm just trying to show kind of different viewpoints on these iconic sort of moments just to get people to think about, like, oh, why didn't we know that, you know, Native workers were passing through, that Chinese workers were the ones also passing through, like, and carving out these regional um, circuits of migration, like, way before, right, Um, way before the discovery of gold, right? And you have white miners who start to do that, too. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of the... Um, what I try to do in the book as huh. well. Yeah. And do you, how far back are, do you look at Seattle in terms of the, like the settlement of downtown and the, the, the racial makeup of who was living and where people were living in downtown? I mean, I start in 1853. Oh, like wow. I start okay. at right the then. founding of the city, the official founding. And what I talk about in my first chapter is called the Sawdust. Um, I talk about how the origin of Seattle in 1853, we see a segregated city even in that moment. So I want to make the argument that, like, segregation isn't something that is, like, recent, but yeah. it's been with Seattle ever since the founding. And I trace the segregation of the Duwamish into the kind of around Yesler sawmill. And then when the Chinese start arriving, who are the second workforce of, of the region and the city, they are kind of pushed into the same area. And so that becomes, like, the segregated area of Seattle, and it persists over time. Um, that kind of north-south geography. So to to look at something in the 1850s and to understand where people were living, what's what were sort of the primary sources you looked at to to make those to all those conclusions? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> it was it was very difficult. I have to say this project was very hard and it took me a really long time to do the research. <laughs> like I mean, I, like over ten years. Right now. <laughs> uh, I mean, seriously, it's like it was so hard because it's very difficult, you know, to trace these kinds of mobile transient you know populations in the archive they don't leave records behind yeah so you can't go to the you know the library and find uh you know a record that about these workers they don't exist they didn't leave behind a lot of of traces in the archive so i had to do a lot of creative detective work and just you know find traces and pieces in various you know i looked at the census i looked at um actually like municipal laws um, were helpful because I could see, you know, who the city was targeting and in what particular moment. Um, I looked at like oral histories and memoirs. Um, I looked at, I, I made my own map because I was trying to figure out, you know, where people were going and 
uh, you know, they were living in Seattle and then they would leave and then come back. So I did a lot of mapping to try to figure out, um, you know, just what that kind of system of labor looked like. I looked at photographs and floor plans and architectural drawings, <laughs> just like a lot of different kinds of materials. I think that always, yeah. I always wonder about with those instances where a city becomes or is segregated or people of a certain ethnicity know not to go somewhere. Like I've, I've talked to um, black friends who have relatives or ancestors or even hear themselves in the 1930s and 1940s and knew not to go into Frederick and Nelson. They knew they weren't welcome there. Mm-hmm. But it's not wasn't necessarily written down anywhere, and it wasn't it wasn't clear. It's never clear to me how the how the, the message is spread, how the oral tradition is spread about you know how people know where to go and where not to go if they're of a, of a certain ethnicity in in the past. I mean, is it? I, I'm guessing no one wrote down in 1853. You know, we're going to put the Native Americans over by Yesler's Mill, and we're going to put the Chinese over here. There wasn't like this was. This wasn't was someone actually like planning this or how what, it seems so organic and sort of uh, yeah. unspoken. But how do they how's it communicated? I don't know. I, I don't know if you understand what I I'm mean, trying to ask. Yeah, no, I see what you're <clears throat> saying. No, it was actually spoken <laughs> in certain moments. It was. And those moments are helpful because you're like, oh, yes, this, this is what they're doing. But okay. in fact, the segregation of the Duwamish to the Sadas was an actual municipal act. OK. That happened, and they said were removing the the Indians, right, as they called them, to the area, basically around Yesler's Mill. They don't say that explicitly, but on the map, that's where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're, it's like, so they defined the city um, as this kind of space for settlers, and then they were removing the Duwamish to the southern fringes. Mm-hmm. Um, that law, like, only was on the books for four years, and then it went away. But that was an example of, like, actually very overt, you know, like... Yeah, no um, kidding. ...removal and segregation. I think that there is um, a, a sort of mythology in Seattle that things are, like, more covert. And yet I found very overt sort of forms of, of segregation, especially by the city, enacted by the city. Um, and yet, the, you know, those kinds of other forms of segregation, like, also exist, too. But there were... that There definitely were more overt actions that i found in the records yes and i was surprised too because i didn't know that what what now what were the four years that 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 duwamish exclusion or what what year was that actually do you recall i don't want to get too granular here but i believe it was 1865 to 1869 okay um don't i mean it's in the book that's just off the top of my head i believe those are the years yeah it's right around the same time that the territory is passing the chinese police act that you know clearly states Mm -hmm. in the intent like to discourage chinese migration into into washington territory you know to protect our workers yeah Um, yeah it's uh Mm -hmm. it's boy it's that's now um you're doing a reading event i think here in a couple days on the university of washington campus are people welcome to come to that can you tell me about that event Oh, yeah, sure. It's um, free and open to the public. It's on Tuesday um, at 4 p.m. at um, Allen Library. And I'm just going to be kind of giving an overview of the book, discussing a little bit about my motivations for writing it. um, And then there's going to be a reception afterwards. So anyone who wants to come is welcome. That's great. Now, um, you mentioned the Gold Rush. I know they're looking at redoing their, their major exhibit, the Gold Rush Museum in downtown Seattle. Are you involved in that at all? I am not involved in that, oh. no, but I think that's a great initiative. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think that's really great, yeah, that they're thinking about revamping that. That's, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, so tell me the title of the book. Tell me the full title. I, don't, I only have the, the subtitle here. Tell me the full title of the book. Yes. 
So the full title is Seattle from the Margins, Exclusion, Erasure, and the Making of a Pacific Coast City. Terrific. Well, um, listen, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Congratulations on the book and all that research. I, I can imagine what that must have taken to put all that information together and, and put it into a coherent story. Um, good luck with your reading. Let's let's have you back again sometime. To, I'd love to further discuss this this whole topic. But that's, oh, um, of course. All right, that's Megan Osaka. She's a professor at UC Riverside, and she's the author of a new book for the University of Washington Press called Seattle from the Margins. And uh, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. Well, coming up, we're going to have um, Cyrus Foreman from the San Juan Island National Historical Park. But uh, first, we're going to do this. We'll be right back with more from the Pacific Northwest on Cascade of History. To learn more about Space 101.1, visit our website at space101fm.org. Once you're there, you can listen to the live stream and share it with your friends far and wide. See a program calendar. Check out the real-time playlist or even donate to our nonprofit all-volunteer radio station, Space 101.1 FM from Historic Magnuson Park and streaming live at space101fm.org. Come aboard. It's time for more Cascade of History with Felix Bunnell. Now, astute listeners to our program, remember that last week we ran out of time to play Episode 5 of of The End of the Oregon Trail from the Olympia Beer Company from 1946. So without further delay, here's Episode number 5 of The End of the Oregon Trail. What inspiration Colonel Simmons and the others gave to those who followed? Uh, But about that property, Mr. Drysdale. Well, it's in pretty good shape, sir. Place has good power and there's spring water on it. Well, let's take a look at it. Spring water, you say? I won't guarantee it's what you're looking for, Mr. Schmidt, but it's wet. <laughs> Leopold F. Schmidt went to Tumwater, to the foot of the hills on which the property was located. He immediately sent a sample of the spring water to a Chicago brewing laboratory for analysis. Weeks of waiting. And then finally the chemist report came back. The sample of water submitted us, received and analyzed. We are pleased to report that it is so pure it may safely be used in place of distilled water for washing yeast in the brewing process without danger of infection. This water compares with the finest brewing waters we've ever tested. And so, within a stone's throw, just 500 yards from the end of the Oregon Trail, the Olympia Brewing Company was founded. And the first product to bear that famous slogan, it's the water, was marketed just 50 years ago, on October the 1st, 1895. The big pine tree has a family, and they're sheltered in the shade of the big pine tree till they grow so high they almost reach the sky. Well, the country grew, and the families grew. And pretty soon, there were those who talked proudly of Granddaddy Michael Simmons, 
Grandpa Gabriel Jones, Grandfather George Bush, and many others. And then one day, long about the 20s, Leopold Schmidt's eldest son, Peter, was talking to the man behind the county recorder's desk, Frank Crosby, whose grandfather, Nathaniel, skippered the New England clipper ship, O.C. Raymond. Well, Frank, I think I'll be going now. Thanks for your help. It's always a pleasure, Peter. How's the family? Just fine, thank you. And yours? Oh, first rate. Oh, by the way, how's your brother Harry? Oh, fine. Uh, Harry has Bing in school up at Gonzaga, you know. Is that so? How's he getting on? Well, I don't know. He's a good boy. But I don't think he'll amount to much. All he wants to do is play baseball and sing. I got some shoes. Don't fit me any longer Gonna make me some others Gonna make them brand new In 1933, the Olympia Brewing Company went out and got itself a brand new pair of shoes. And since that time, many thousands of visitors have marveled at the sparkling cleanliness of the new plant which rests amid a beautifully landscaped area at the Upper Falls at Tumwater. This new plant, designed and built by the sons and grandsons of Leopold F. Schmidt, stands today as a living emblem of his teachings and business principles, and is an incentive to the several hundred happy and efficient men and women of the modern Olympia organization. The latch string is always out for visitors at Tumwater, one mile south of Olympia on Highway 99. Care to drop in for a quick visit? A real cliffhanger there ending each episode of uh, the end of the Oregon Trail with the famous narrator William Conrad from Gunsmoke. It is Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're the only live radio program all about news and stories of Pacific Northwest history. Having history in the name Cascade History and then having to have history in the description of what Cascade of History is, I realize it's very awkward, and I'm trying to find another word for that, but I don't have anything for it now. But um, we're here because of Space 101.1 FM, community radio station, all uh, supported by donations from listeners, generous listeners, generous organizations. If you feel like donating or like feel like learning more about the station, if you go to space101fm.org, space101fm.org, you can see what other programs we offer during the week. Um, and ways you can support the station, and it's a, it's a great, great community resource, and it's great to be able to do this show live on the radio on a Sunday night, streaming all around the world, but hopefully aimed at people in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and British Columbia. And we have a terrific amount of history here that we try to share a little bit of it every week. There's no end of topics. We could do three or four hours a night if we wanted to. But I think I don't know if anyone would have the appetite for that. But um, I wanted to welcome our next guest. Let's see if he's there. Cyrus Foreman, can you hear me? Are you there, Cyrus? I am. Can you hear me? Yeah, wonderful. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. I've got Cyrus Foreman on the line. He's a ranger up at the San Juan Island National Historic Park up on San Juan Island in the San Juan Islands. That's a lot of San Juans um, for, for, for one sentence right there. But thanks for making time to join us on this Sunday night. I saw a, a post you had put on social media, and you and I had spoken earlier in the year about the pig war. And so the immediate anniversary that just passed in the last day or two is, is pretty important, right? What's, what's the anniversary that just passed about the pig war? Then we can get into what the pig war is, but what's the anniversary that just passed? So um, 163 years ago, uh, this week, 
was the moment when General Winfield Scott, the highest-ranking United States Army officer uh, of the mid-19th century, uh, came to the waters of the Salish Sea and ordered a de-escalation of forces that resulted in a peaceful resolution. Uh, <laughs> so wait, what, why did it, why did there have to be a de-escalation of forces? And I mean, the San Juans are it's like Lime Kiln Park. There's there's kayaking. There's whales. There's all sorts of really nice things. What what was going on in the San Juan Islands 160 years ago that required General Winfield Scott to show up? Well, uh, there was a conflict. Uh, over the international boundary between Britain and France, that I mean, between Britain and the United States, that uh, escalated uh, to the point where uh, you had 1,900 Royal Marines aboard five top-of-the-line warships uh, in the direct line with their cannons in the direct line of sight of 500 United States uh, Army soldiers uh, getting ready to or in the process of building a. Uh, fortress to confront the Royal Navy. So there was um, a heated and escalating standoff uh, amongst local forces that could have dragged the two empires into a global war. And so the initial event, I mean, the thing that gives it the name the Pig War, when did that happen? And tell me what happened. So the Pig War uh, began in uh, mid-June, June 15, 1859, uh, when a pig belonging to the Hudson's Bay Company's Bellevue Sheep Farm, which uh, sheep farm is uh, an inadequate way to describe it. It was uh, the entire island was a 4,000 sheep um, corporate farm. Um, it, that pig got into the garden of a failed gold miner named Lyman Cutler, who was one of uh, approximately 20 Americans uh, almost all of them failed gold miners, uh, <laughs> who uh, decided that based on the imprecise treaty language, the Hudson's Bay Company sheep farm was a foreign occupier of uh, what should be rightfully American homesteads. And they took advantage of the meadows that had been cleared by the British for their sheep to put in farms. Uh, it was uh, not a bad deal for a homesteader to not have to do that kind of work themselves. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> so, so I know the it's the the treaty says says something like you know the the line. This is the Treaty of 1846 that settled for once and for all you know where the boundary was between what was going to be American territory, what was going to be British, you know, eventually Canadian territory. And there was some murky language about going down the main channel of navigation, and that meant there was open to interpretation as to whether or not. Was it San Juan Island or all of the San Juans were in the were in British or American territory? Um, well, all of the San Juans, if you ask the Americans, if you ask the British from time to time, they would say just San Juan. Okay. Because they actually uh, believe they wanted to offer a compromised third channel that didn't <laughs> exist. That would have given <laughs> most of the San Juans to the United States, would have allowed them to keep San Juan. Uh, it's worth noting that they, they saw San Juan as important to national defense because they were building uh, military bases in Victoria that were their primary North American or Western North American military bases. So they saw San Juan as necessary to keeping Victoria safe. Yeah, they built that incredible Navy base there at Esquimalt there in the 1830s or 1840s, I guess. Um, question for you. So the treaty signed in 1846, 
how soon does someone scratching their head and saying, hey, wait a second, do they mean, where do they mean this line? I mean, how, do you recall, do you know how soon that became an issue or when someone saw, whether Hudson's Bay saw a chance to stay, stay put or whether Americans saw the chance to go and, you know, move in? Is that, is that clear when that happened? I mean, they, they knew it was known almost immediately by people who knew the geography of the Pacific Northwest. So um, within a week of the treaty making it back to England, Hudson's Bay Company officials were in the Secretary of uh, State's office uh, telling them that they'd messed up and that this was an inexact treaty and that they needed to go back to the table of the Americans because uh, there were this didn't give them possession of the San Juans clearly and Americans could interpret it to mean that they were theirs. It seems like there were lots of opportunities at different moments in the, the, the saga, which if, you, if it goes from 1846 until, what, 1872 is when it's eventually settled? Yep. So what's that's about 26 years, if I'm doing the math correctly? Um, mm-hmm. It seems like there are several opportunities where cooler heads did prevail, but then sort of just cooler heads didn't prevail. Like, they could have cleared it up sooner, but they kind of, they, they sort of dug in. Is there, um, when did it come the closest to erupting into an actual, like, armed conflict? That would be uh, in the um, la- like um, that would be in the last weeks of July and early August of 1859. At that point in time, um, there were orders uh, amongst at least um, Governor James Douglas of British Columbia had given orders to fire on American uh, <laughs> soldiers, oh, uh, and they, they there was uh, there were delays amongst the British captains who were given those orders there. It wasn't exactly clear the chain of command from a royal governor to a Navy official. And <laughs> luckily, the captains on the ground delayed um, action long enough for the commanding officer of the entire Pacific Fleet, Admiral Lambert Baines, to arrive on the scene. And clearly, a, a Pacific Fleet commander outranked a royal governor. But he was there almost by luck. Uh, the year before, uh, about 20,000 American gold miners showed up in British Columbia in two or three months' time. Hmm. And there were more Americans in British Columbia so uh, than the British subjects. And so part of the issue that sort of uh, goes unacknowledged when we focus on San Juan and the boundary conflict here was that there were so many Americans in British Columbia that the Royal Navy was called in in the middle of the Opium Wars. They were diverted uh, in order to make a show of force to stop Americans from seizing all of British Columbia. And so were it not for that gold mining uh, rush, which resulted in the failed gold miners on San Juan, uh, Admiral Lambert Baines wouldn't have showed up in the first place and uh, prevented violence. So in some ways, it was it was a maybe it's overstating to say it was a chance to sort of settle some old scores or there was actually I mean, there was there was plenty of already conflict bubbling beneath the surface before a pig was shot. Yeah, I mean, you have to picture, especially amongst the British and Governor James Douglas, uh, you know, he had been the chief factor at Fort Vancouver uh, in the uh, mid 1840s. And so the treaty, which had put this into in, into question, put the San Juans into question, was the same treaty that had driven him out of the Hudson's Bay Company's main um, main trading post in Vancouver, Washington, and forced him onto, into British Columbia. 
So, you know, he had a visceral distaste for American settlers and a belief that they would just keep pushing and pushing the British out of the Northwest. That's right, because the British at, at some point, the reason that they had like settled at Fort Vancouver, uh, the Hudson's Bay Company anyway, they hoped or assumed or I, I don't know, maybe hoped is the best word, that the boundary would be drawn down the middle of the Columbia and that they would have everything north of the Columbia River in British hands, not in American hands. Yeah, well, I mean, it w- if it weren't for um, President Polk campaigning on a, a main cat uh, campaign pledge of war with Britain for all of the Pacific North and West, including British Columbia, um, it's likely that that would have been the case, that that line would have been the line. It made sense for navigation into Canada, and it was a natural boundary. Yeah. Uh, but American aggression and the British desire to avoid uh, a war with America that would have taxed imperial resources uh, lost the Hudson's Bay Company and the British people the state of Washington. And I guess you had the 49th parallel already like in Minnesota and eastward. So there was sort of a there was some momentum on that side for the 49th to continue all the way out to at least the, the coast and then, you know, dip down so the Brit- Vancouver Island could be part of British territory, I guess. I mean, it's 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 crazily complex. How then the fact they were negotiating that in London and Washington and sort of figuring out all those things from so many thousands of miles away is pretty crazy in, in that in that era. Um, there, there's isn't there a particularly hot-headed American military guy who later is part of the Civil War who was who was there as, in the early days of the conflict? Yes, that would be uh, Captain George Pickett, uh, the first commander at American camp. Uh, I will say, in all all fairness to Captain Pickett. He learned a lesson from his aggression early in the uh, Big War conflict, and he became very uh, obsequious and friendly with the British and was actually responsible for uh, establishing a pattern of extremely cordial relations between the Americans and British during the first 12 years, during the 12 years that both sides' militaries were stationed on this island. Hmm. Uh, That's not to excuse him, of course, for his... Uh, tactical errors and war crimes during the Civil War, uh, but uh, his his record on San Juan is mixed. Yeah, it's. We were talking earlier to uh, Megan Osaka, who's written a book called um, about uh, Seattle history in the margins. I don't, I'm not saying the title correctly, but we were talking about the complexity of stories. And in some ways, the pig war works as a really simple story. You know, a pig being shot and the British and the Americans, you know, put troops on either side and then they waited it out for 13 years. And, all. and that, But obviously, there's this much deeper complexity to it. And I know you guys have been going really deep on other aspects of the story that haven't been told as thoroughly or haven't been told at all as part of the new visitor center that's recently opened up. Yeah, that's um, been a real goal of ours long term. Uh, we didn't want to look at our history in isolation, right? This is a um, 13-year period, depend on, depending on how you define it. But um, one important aspect to realize is that this is that our island uh, has been a Coast Salish homeland since time immemorial, yeah. and the Coast Salish history is one that continues. Uh, whereas the uh, history of 19th-century military uh, forces is not ongoing uh, in the same way. And so we we work very closely uh, with numerous park associated tribes to create a visitor center that tells their history and culture in um, you know an appropriate way and that recreates uh, some of what pre contact life was like 
on our island. And, you know, we also work to incorporate uh, other untold stories. Um, like uh, we really tried to focus on the Hawaiians mm. who uh, were the first non-native settlers on this island, the employees of the Hudson's Bay Company who made that sheep farm prosper, and all of the complex multiracial families who lived on this island during and after the Pig War. That's great. And the vis- new visitor center is open now. Are you guys open year-round? Uh, we are not currently open year-round. Okay. Um, we are going to be open for the next two weekends, Thursday uh, through Saturday. After that, we're going to be closing for the year. Um, visitation patterns on San Juan <laughs> Island uh, are kind of boomer bust. So that is not to say that we are not a highly visited <laughs> national park. We've had a threefold increase in the past four years uh, in, in our visitation. We've gone from a, about a hundred eighty between 180 and 300,000 visitors a year to uh, this year we're going to be at almost 800,000 visitors. That is excellent. I haven't made it up there yet. haven't been up there for many years, so I'm going to try and make it up next summer. I'm really glad we got to talk to you where you have two weekends left and people can still get a chance to get up and take a look at the new visitor center and see all the work that you've done. Cyrus Foreman, at a ranger at San Juan Island National Historical Park, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History tonight. And keep in touch. Let's have you on again sometime. There's so many more stories up there. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Cyrus. Good night. Bye. All right. Uh, let's see. Well, you know, I mentioned we get a lot of support from the city of Seattle. So, you know, let, let's give Mayor Clinton one more chance to, to share his message for his uh, re-election campaign from 1960. By the re-elect Mayor Clinton committee, now another progress report from Mayor Clinton. For your enjoyment, here is our new downtown library at 4th and Spring. I'm sure you'll agree that it is one of Seattle's most beautiful buildings. It took a great deal of planning and hard work by your library board, city government, and citizen groups to make it a reality. During the past four years, we've also made continual improvements in our beaches and parks and have added such new facilities as small boat launching ramps. Now through the capital improvement program, plans are set for other park and playground improvements throughout the city. These are typical examples of how teamwork is building Seattle's cultural and recreational heritage. With the leadership of Mayor Clinton, Seattle has seen significant progress through teamwork. Vote for proven leadership. Re-elect Mayor Clinton. So you have your marching orders. Re-elect Mayor Clinton, okay? And uh, speaking of re-electing Mayor Clinton, I think he probably was a volunteer on the Clinton campaign. John Maynard, are you there? Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, filling out my ballot for <laughs> Mayor Clinton. We're, yeah. we're, we're totally non-political here. We're a community radio station. We can't actually play political ads, but I think we can get away with playing uh, playing ads from Mayor Clinton's campaign. Would you be able to get away with having Marshawn on? <laughs> I don't have a dump button. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so, hey, thanks for being a guest here on uh, Cascade of History. It's this incredible live history show. I'm sure you've listened to every episode that's been on these last eight I or never nine weeks. It. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I never hear it and I never miss it, that old joke. I've never I've never heard of it. <laughs> anyway, well, what we do, just I mean, since I've got you on the phone here and since you wouldn't take my call earlier, I can tell you and, and all the listeners. Let's see, there's my mom, uh, there's yeah. my uncle, uh, let's see. Uh-huh. No. Uh, we focus on the history of the Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. But it's more about stories and storytelling. Like earlier we just had a guy who runs the uh, Visitor Center up at the San Juan Island National Historical Park, talking about the Pig War. 
Yeah, had, yeah. They had an author named Megan Osaka on talking about sort of people in the margins of Seattle history in a new book she has out from the University of Washington Press. So I, I'm trying to remember now. Why did I? Why are we having you on? No, just kidding. Um, I always I want to ask you a couple of things. Well, that's you, my question. <laughs> You're you're a legend in Northwest Radio, and yeah, truly, yeah, bigger. Actually, probably a little bit bigger than a legend. But we'll go, <laughs> we'll go with that. Yeah. And I always think about it because, I mean, radio has changed so much in the last I don't know, last I don't know, thirty years. I've been paying attention. Forty years, whatever, fifty years, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I always, whenever I get to introduce you in public, which is usually once or twice a year at these different events, we it's, we haven't done it since the pandemic. But I always fixate on that night, that your first night on the air in Spokane. Mm-hmm. Was it was it KJRB or was it KNEW at that point? It was KNEW. Yeah, it was New Year's Eve, 1965, and you get the nod to to fill in for somebody. You're like, no one else, everyone else wants to go have a party, and they figure, let's well, get the new guy. You know, back then you had to have a license, and I was <laughs> the only bozo that had a license that was able to run the station at night. So I was the guy. They could have put. A, a chimp in if he would have had a license <laughs> and it wouldn't have made any difference. <laughs> and we, were you going by Buzz Lawrence? Was that your on-air name? You know, I still, I lament that because I still do, I cut uh, clips for a station in Spokane and I am still that god-awful horrible name, Buzz Lawrence. <laughs> That's what they wanted because of my status in Spokane. But when I, when I walked into the station, um, as John Maynard, they looked up on the shelf and they said, okay, we've got a lot of pre-recorded jingles. What are you going to be? Are you going to be uh, Joe Blow? Or, oh, here's Buzz Lawrence. You'll be Buzz Lawrence. And I was young enough to just kowtow and say, oh, okay, well, if that's the way it works. And that stuck for five years. And so, and here we're now we're living it, reliving the horror again right now. <laughs> so, so you weren't the first Buzz Lawrence. You were just who, the you were this the warm body that night being Buzz Lawrence. Well, they had pre-recorded jingles. Okay. They just made up names. It could have been it could have been <laughs> Ben Dover. So who knew? And they just had a whole stack of them because, as you know, radio is one click down from being a rodeo clown. <laughs> And so there's a lot of turnover, and people come in and out the door, and so they had pre-recorded jingles, just not knowing who would come in. <laughs> and so that night, I mean, because I'm obsessed with this New Year's Eve 1965 thing. I don't know why I'm obsessed with that, but it just it sounds... I don't know why. What is the fixation it's, on that? Let's talk about when I went to Franklin grade school. That was something. Well, <laughs> you know, I want to have... We'll make it like a cereal. We'll have you on next week and talk. We'll have like a therapy session. Are there other people on while we're on, or is it just you and I? <laughs> There's other people listening, I think. Well, I thought you had a park ranger or somebody on. Well, yeah, we have. There's three segments. We have three guests. You're the you're the you're you're the uh, grand finale tonight. Oh, so it's just you and me. No, but we're not holding anybody else up. <laughs> yeah, it's not a panel discussion. All right. So, how do people hear this? If there, in fact, is anybody it's, that is listening to it's it, it's low power FM. It's community station. It's actually it's the the studios are really cool. It's in the old. Um, it's at the gate of Magnuson Park or the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station in what used to be the Sergeant at Arms quarters. There's actually a like a bathroom and shower that's now a, like a tape storage room, and it's this old concrete building from looks like the 1950s, maybe the late 1940s. And it's a it's all community supported by donations and stuff, and they they run a bunch of different locally made shows, all throughout the week, mostly in the evening and stuff. So I'm the only it's kind a of low powered FM station. Yeah, and it's one hundred one point one FM. Frequency. 
101.1 FM, and the tower's up on top of a McCarty dorm up on the University of Washington <laughs> campus. So it's pretty tall. Yeah, it's up on the hill there. So it reaches it reaches most of North Seattle and also my hometown of Kirkland across the lake. So all the people Well, if that there's I, yeah. anybody listening, why don't you call in right now, and I'll tell you what, I'll give you a new Buick. <laughs> <laughs> Does Buick still, they still make those? I thought they went do out of you, business. Do you have any measurement of how many people are actually listening to this? Yeah, oh, lots of people are listening. Actually, the stream has been growing. They, we just had a meeting yesterday. And the, Your stream is growing. I wish mine were. <laughs> Sorry about on, that. It's a family radio station. Oh, too. it is. Oh, well, then I'll just shut up. No, but because, uh, you know, it also it streams online, too. So it gets it, people listen to it from wherever. And then it gets posted as a podcast, too. But basic premise is it's, there's, no, there's no place on the radio to talk for an hour about local history and kind of just well, have conversations. Well, what are you talking about? I thought you talked about it with Dave Ross. That's just a couple times a week. That's like ten minutes a week. That's a whole nother. That's just and that's you know that's that's in the morning. That's a whole different ball game. This is this is more relaxed. This is if you if this thing really takes hold and the ratings surpass that of uh, when you're on with Cairo, will they fire you? God, I hope so. That'd be great. <laughs> that, would, that would be that would be a break. I'd be ready for. I'm ready to retire actually. Um, <laughs> but you're changing the subject. I'm still fixated on New Year's Eve, 1965. Because okay, let's talk about. So it. what? You, uh, what time did you have to show up to be there to work New Year's Eve? Do you recall? Uh, you know, I don't because what it was. You know, it was a while ago. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I'll tell you, I was so nervous. <laughs> that I probably did get there early, so let's just say I got there to go on at midnight. Let's, I think I went on before midnight, um, because who wants to be there on a New Year's Eve? So let's say I got there. Oh, I remember now. I got there at 8.30. <laughs> and did you have like a playlist you had to play, or were you playing whatever you wanted to play, or how did that work, the music selection, that kind of stuff? Yeah, no, we had a little one of those little wire racks, 45s. I could pull anything out that I wanted to play. There was the format was loose. You know, we had News Live at 55 with Ross Woodward, and uh, that was about it. And and there wasn't really any. There was not a lot of direction. There was there was I didn't never sit down and listen to somebody about formatics or everything. It was just well the control room's down at the end of the hall and oh here's turntable one, turntable two and a card deck and here's your mic switch, I gotta go. So there wasn't a lot of training or prep into it. I understood if you went to work for Bill Drake at his powers house stations I actually think you went in and, and ran through things for a couple of weeks and kind of practiced the format. There was an actual style book. With us, it was just, you know, it was, you got a parking spot. You were good. Uh, um, now, were the, was the phone ringing off the hook, like people calling with long-distance dedications and stuff like that, or was it not? Well, no, you're thinking of Casey Kasem, but... <laughs> The, uh, no, I'm not thinking. Of, I'm thinking of uh, Buzz Lawrence. <laughs> well, we did. I'll tell you. Yes, we did have request lines, and you know, then that was you know pre everything that pre TikTok. So um, <laughs> it was. Uh, there were two two ways to make a request. You could either call the request line Keystone four nine three six three, or you could actually drive to the station and stand in the planter box. And you could yell through an open window that was up at the top of the studio. We sat right in the glass, right in front 
of anybody could drive up, and, and people did. They would drive up, and they would look at the DJ. I don't know. There's not a lot to see. Then they'd sit in the parking lot, and they would look. And, you know, at Kisson in Portland, they were in the big plate glass windows at 10th and Burnside. Yeah, Could you imagine that's right. even that happening? Oh, my God, you would have a hot lead uh, aspirin before you got out of the second record. <laughs> So how how long you you were at KNEW, which became KJRB for five years? Because there was WNEW in New York City, and the station there was a station in San Francisco that wanted to become the that became the sister station. They wanted to be KNEW, and Lester Smith, who owned KNEW in the Spokane. Uh, worked out a bargain that he would uh, sell them the call letters. That's so, right. And then it was easy enough to change to identify with the sister station, KJR. So it became KJRB, and uh, Lester made another pocket full of dough. <laughs> so after after five years there in Spokane, which was... You're, you're from Pullman originally, though, right? So Spokane was the oh, big you city for tell. you, right? Oh, you, I thought it would show. What's that? I said I thought you would be able to just tell by my countenance <laughs> that, you know, you would go, he must, must be from Pullman. Have you heard him? Yeah, I'm, I grew up in Pullman and was wonderful. Okay. And then you moved to Seattle in 1970-ish? I like did, that? July 4th. Okay. And yeah. well, you always, do you always do your stuff on holidays? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, it's kind of a format. <laughs> yeah. It's, and yeah. so you were, were you Buzz Lawrence in Seattle or were you John Maynard in Seattle? No, John Maynard. Okay. No, I was so happy to dump Buzz Lawrence. God, I can't stand that name. So what was the biggest difference between Seattle, like first day on the job in Seattle in 1970? And... Well, I was kind of the, if you want to, you know, I was working afternoons. If uh, you want to, I'm not sure what kind of terms I can put it in, but I was a larger fish at a smaller pond in Spokane, and then coming to Seattle, I was totally over my head at KJR because I was working with guys that really had genuine talent. Lan Roberts was oh, yeah. there. Wow. And, uh, yeah, they had a great staff. Gary Taylor was the program director, and, of course, I was working for Pat O'Day, and uh, he was on the air, so I was totally over my head. Was was KJR more rigorous in terms of the playlist or, like, what you had to do and hitting the spot breaks and that kind of thing? Than no, in, no. Yeah. It was more rigorous in having no idea what the hell I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> that that was true. I really, I just, it was just awful. <laughs> it was just a horrible experience for everybody. It was one for myself, for people listening, and for Pat, and for Pat O'Day. He was so happy to finally hire me, fire me. So yeah. wait, how long did you last at KJR in Seattle then? Uh, almost three years. Okay. <laughs> yeah. What was the instant that finally got you fired, if you can talk about it on a family radio station? Uh, yeah, I hope so. Well, of course, we don't know what kind of family is listening to this, but um, I, on the Sunday night, uh, at that time, we had, as you know, a public service um, obligation. We had to play these public service programs that benefited the community. And uh, it was very slow and plotting, and I think it started at 9 o'clock. We didn't play music anymore. We went into public programming, and I would uh, play a 
30-minute tape, and then I would come on at the end of the tape, give the station ID, play another tape, and do that until midnight. Gary Shannon, who worked there, uh, called me from the captain's table, and he and some friends were down having dinner, and they were having cocktails at the (laughs) captain's table, and they said, why don't you come down and have drinks with me? So I asked the chief engineer who came in on Sunday nights to look at transmitter logs, do whatever they do. I said, Nathan, would you do me a solid? Could you play these tapes every half hour until midnight? And he said, yeah, I'll do it. So I said, okay. So I trotted down to the captain's table. And what I didn't know was when the chief engineer put one of the tapes on, he put the a tape has two sides. If you play it across the heads of the recorder of the playback on one side, it plays fine. If it's flipped over, it won't play. It sounds... <laughs> kind of sounds like that. And so he had the heads flipped, but he wasn't listening. He didn't care. He put it on and went back to doing soldering transistors or whatever he was doing. And... But, of course, naturally, Pat O'Day happened to be listening, and he called the hotline, but put John Maynard on the phone. And uh, he said, well, you'll have, to, you'll have to call him down at the captain's table if you want to talk to him. So that was that. That's that great. That was that. All and, right. Um, well. so, and, and they wanted to hire somebody else anyway, and so it was a good idea. It was a, a good out for Pat. He called me at home the next day and he said john you need to you seem to be taking giant steps backward we're trying to take them forward so that was that all right so i was all right well that's we're about out of time here it's reaching the top of the hour here on the big cascade of history that's that's a good story to go out on so john maynard thanks for joining us on the big show we'll have you back again to talk about uh new year's day 1966 that'll be our next story Is a better and bigger story. Have have a good night, John. Thanks for joining us. Good night. Bye bye. It's John Maynard, the legendary radio personality from Spokane and Seattle, originally from Pullman. I'm Felix Bunnell. It's Cascade of History. We are signing off another big show. Thanks to Megan Osaka, Cyrus Foreman, and John Maynard. Uh, We're at Space 101.1 FM here in Seattle. Visit our website, space101fm.org. You can see more information about other programs and how to support us. And thanks for listening to Cascade of History. We'll see you here again next Sunday night at 8 p.m. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it. Watch it. That's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell.